I can say a lot of great things about Andy Bronsman, who is a recipient of various leadership and service awards, including the 2020 Cincinnati Business Courier's 40 Under 40 nomination. But instead, I will only say that Be Concerned, the organization that Andy has been leading for the past seven years, is a vital part of our community, taking care of those who have fallen through the cracks of our system and those who were hit the hardest by the pandemic. Be Concerned helps people with food, our most basic need, and does it with dignity and respect. Andy and his team are true heroes, dedicating themselves fully to the most poor and disadvantaged members of our community. On this episode of Impacting Cincinnati, we discuss the problem of poverty and food insecurity in our neighborhoods, discuss various programs that are available at Be Concerned, and partnerships with other nonprofits in the region. We talk about the root causes of the hunger problem in the U.S. and solutions that are being implemented. We also discuss the nations that are most urgently needed and those items that should not be donated. This conversation is meant to educate the public on the problem of hunger and also to provide insight into the world of a nonprofit organization that deals with that problem on a daily basis. I hope you will enjoy this podcast, but most importantly, I hope you will engage and support Be Concerned. And now, here's my conversation with Andy Bronsman. Andy, thank you for coming in today. I appreciate you taking the time and being here. In college, you were a recipient of the Dave uh, Scharfenberger Community Service Award and also a recipient of Sister Maria Corona Malloy Leadership Award, both awarded for outstanding leadership skills and dedication to service. Then, after graduating from Mount St. Joseph, you went straight into charity work starting with Ronald McDonald House, then on to the Welcome House of Northern Kentucky, and uh, then you joined uh, Be Concerned, where you are now the executive director and have been for the past seven years. So my first question is, how did you choose this path and what influenced you? Um, well, Dimitri, thank you for having me today. I'm looking forward to, to getting into all these fun questions with you. Um, so for me, my path to the service sector um, I was raised on the west side of Cincinnati uh, in a Roman Catholic family. I went to Catholic school, so service was kind of always part of something we learned about and something we did in an academic perspective or through the church. Uh, it was really my time in college at Mount St. Joseph University working with the, the nuns at the Sisters of Charity in our service learning office that really got me to understand the career and experiential side of service and professional service learning. During my time in college, I went to college thinking I was just going to play football. I just wanted to play football and eventually, hopefully, go on to medical school. Well, once my time as a football player came to an end, I was looking for some other way to get involved. I had a lot of free time on my hands and honestly saw some people around me kind of getting in trouble, and I knew I didn't want to get in trouble like they were. So I went to the service learning office and spoke with one of the nuns, Sister Murray Bookser, and I asked her, you know, kind of what could I do with my time? And, and she had recommended the service learning program. 
and I had bounced around a few things. So I had done a service learning placement at the Museum Center in Cincinnati when the Bodies exhibit was in town, and that felt a lot like teaching to me. That was a different level of service. So I, so I, I learned then the teaching level of service probably wasn't what I enjoyed doing. I did tutoring as well at a place called Santa Maria Community Service, and again learned that teaching probably wasn't for me. And after that, I went and talked with Sister Mary Bookster, and I said, you know, I want to go to a place that's meaningful service and a place that people are afraid to go. And at that point, um, Over the Rhine had been recently ranked by USA Today as the most dangerous zip code in the country. And there was a charity called Our Daily Bread in, in downtown Cincinnati, right, south, right outside of Finley Market, that had an opportunity for a student from Mount St. Joseph to come and work there as a volunteer. And so I started my first service learning official credit placement at Our Daily Bread in their daily soup kitchen and over the Rhine. And on my first day in the soup kitchen, I looked around and I saw a bunch of great people, people that were helping, people that were getting help. And what I realized is almost everybody who was giving the help was an older person. There wasn't a lot of young talent in the, in the nonprofit pipeline. And I kind of made the decision at that point to switch my major off of kind of the, the athletic training and chemistry and physics track for medicine. And I became a communications major and decided I was going to give the beginning, the middle, and the end of my career to the service sector. That is how I got started, was I had this kind of realization that the nonprofit sector, we can't always pay the best, so we don't always attract the best talent. And I wanted to be somebody who came and gave the beginning, the middle, and the end of my career to the nonprofit so that they gave me kind of in all stages of my professional, you know, when I could move fast, when I have to slow down, and I have to slow down really towards the end. And it was really eye-opening for me because at Our Daily Bread, I found a way to make a difference today, and that was like a spark that lit inside of me, as I always had known about service from my Catholic upbringing. But doing that service and being involved in it, there's a saying that when, you know, to see the face of God, you truly serve another person. And I realized right then, there's something that comes with service that's extremely meaningful for you. And that kind of was the spark that lit a number of things. I spent a year at Our Daily Bread opening up the computer lab so that homeless people could reconnect with their families, so that they could um, create e email accounts to apply for work and give them a home base. From there, I became a board member at Our Daily Bread. I think I was 20 years old, maybe, when I became an official board member. Um, I, I was a professional intern there following that, and then Ronald McDonald House hired me in Cincinnati my junior year of college, I believe, and that started my kind of service sector into the healthcare and caring aspect of things. So for me, that's how I got involved in all this, and everything for me has been you have to be willing to do the lowest level job at your charity. So I literally started our daily bread scrubbing toilets and things because I wanted to see every aspect of how the charity functions, from the janitor to the executive director. Uh, and for me, it became something I wanted to do with the rest of my life. It was a way to give of my talent to give back and have an immediate impact on people. Well, it, it is very much an inspiration, I think, to, uh, to listen to you speak to how you uh, found your path and how you continue following it. Uh, so my, my sincere uh, applause to you for that. And uh, the fact that you are young, you have uh, very much a full career um, in, in this space ahead of you there's so much you can do i think you you bring so much energy just by looking at you and listening to you uh, there's definitely a lot of energy that i think is contagious and uh, i i would assume that it is quite important to have that element but besides your personal um, qualities the the personal core that you received in your childhood or even in, in college what about specific 
skills that you learned that you think helped you or continue to help you on this journey as you are making this contribution to the community? Any specific skills, any knowledge that you gained? Sure. Being, being open-minded, I think, is one of the things that's most important um, in this line of work. You hear a lot of different sides of both, both stories, but both from the customers you serve, from the donors you have, from the folks who work with you. Everyone has a different personal take, but being able to be an active listener and kind of be able to understand people's point of views that, that aren't yours or maybe even points of view you don't agree with, for me, at a very young age, I realized the most important part of leadership of the nonprofit was being a listener. So not only listening, not only hearing what people are saying, but being willing to take that into account and then make some change um, so that their feedback can be accounted for. Multitasking is probably the most important thing, the, the most important talent that I think any nonprofit leader or really any business leader should have. And in the nonprofit, a lot of times you have to move fast and juggle a number of things. So I learned at a young age that you can be cleaning the bathroom, directly followed by stocking the shelf, directly followed by meeting with your biggest donor, all within a two-hour time frame. And you have to be able to multitask and then prioritize. You know, everything is important, but you do have to be able to properly prioritize importance um, so that you can constantly make progress. Uh, and then the last thing is being genuine. I mean, I think that's one of the most important aspects of any job, especially in leadership, is a lot of people promise a lot of things to a lot of different folks. And then you lose social capital with those people if you don't follow through. Basically, as a young man, and still now one of the things I've always tried to practice, is if I tell you something, you can count on it. Because at the end of the day, if any leader can't count on their word, then they really can't count on anything. And your word oftentimes follows your example. So if you lead by example, you try to be as honest as you can, and then if you deliver on what you promise, I've learned you build great, great amounts of social capital. And I think for all of us, social capital was probably one of the most untalked about things that is extremely important, not only for leadership, but in my personal opinion of what separates some folks from poverty and some folks not in poverty is the opportunity to have people go to bat for you, people that have your back, and that's what you mean by social Social capital. capital, correct. Social capital is the people around you, the influence from the folks that are part of your day-to-day -day life. So that, like, for example, for me in college, when I, you know, I was a young man. I was, you know, I was getting into trouble every once in a while, like any college kid would. But for me, whenever I made a mistake, I had a professor. I had a nun. I had somebody at the university that would come through and say, give him another chance. He's got a lot of good stuff going for him. I learned that as a young person that a lot of low-income families, they don't have that social capital. They don't have someone going to bat for when they make a mistake. When they make a mistake, it's lock them up. And I learned that at a young age of social capital and, and who you surround yourself with, not only who you surround yourself with, but how, how you can lend your talent set and your skills to help them, which then in terms, they become an advocate for you. And people start to highlight the positives in your life and the positives in your skill set much more than they highlight the negatives. And I think that is a big and a very important topic and theme is social capital. So do you feel that Be Concerned, one of its main roles in the community is to provide that social capital? I do. Our mission statement is based off humanity, dignity, and respect. And a lot of times when you're a low-income person, you may or may not get that all the time. And we're very specific at Be Concerned. You know, we're a free grocery store. It's a free food pantry. 
but we were one of the first in Kentucky that gave people a choice. It's called a choice pantry model because we realized it's already hard enough in your life to have to come and ask for food, right? Almost every human being has been conditioned over their life that at bare minimum, you provide food for your family. And when you can't do that, to have to come and ask for help the first time is a really degrading thing. I mean, it, it does. It hurts your feelings. It makes you feel like you're not doing what you should. And I understand that. That, for my end, is where a lot of social capital from Be Concern comes in, is when you come in, we try. It's not so much what we give. You know, the groceries is important, but it's how we do it. It's with that smile. It's with that not judging you for why you're there. And it's really trying to serve you with a smile and an open heart. And at the end of the day, there's no better way to respect another human being than to understand life is very situational for people. And sometimes people need help and sometimes they don't. But if you can find people that need help and you can treat them just like a customer at Kroger or Meyer or Target, there's a whole different feeling. You start to see that person's positive light get re-sparked inside of them. That's why at our food pantry, we do not call our consumers clients. We call them customers because almost every social service that they're going to receive, whether it's federal level or state level or local level, they're almost always going to be a client on a roster somewhere. Mm-hmm. And when they come to us, they're, it's not that they're not humanized at other places, but for us it's a cognizant effort to humanize that they are a customer, that we would not be there without them. Just like our big grocery stores wouldn't be there without people buying food from them, without people feeling comfortable to come to, to us and ask for help, we would never be where we are today. And honestly, we would have never got started. And that's where social capital at the food pantry comes in from the, from the consumer end, the customer end. But then you get social capital from your donors, which is important. So if donors come in and donors have a specific target area that they're worried about, say school children, say senior citizens, say pet food, if you promise that donor that you'll do something about it and then you do something about it, that donor will stick with you for a long time because they see you actively doing something about the issue. It's not constantly hearing problems and saying, well, there's nothing I can do. It's a willingness to do that. And then same thing with community partners. A lot of things in nonprofit are based on the community partners around us, the partner charities that we have. So Be Concerned works with 150 different local charities through something called the Safety Net Alliance of Northern Kentucky. And that is social capital kind of defined to the T, I would say. It's a number of us working in this field. We all serve a similar client base. And when we get together, we talk about efficiencies. We talk about effective services, and we talk about streamlining those for the families so that we have social capital with each other, that if somebody comes to be concerned and says, well, I need to apply for food stamps, that we know somebody at the Cabinet for Health and Family Services that we can refer them to, so that's kind of a more seamless process. With that, you garner all this network of 150 agencies helping families instead of just one island. So you've got social capital from the customers who come to you, from the volunteers, the staff, the donors that make your work possible, and then with your community partners who provide the myriad services which these families need, which, you know, be concerns a grocery store. We can't help you pay your rent. We can't help you get a job. Right. We refer to our social capital network of friends who can help with that. Is it just a referral or is it more of a data exchange, if you will, as, as you send somebody, send your client to a partner organization that you work with? Do you handhold that person through that process? Do you pass along various information about that person? That's why I use the, the term data exchange. Or does it, does it feel for these people that come to you or go to these other organizations, does it feel for them that, oh, today I came to be concerned, 
they helped me. It was great. They referred me to another organization. I go there. And the cycle of being introduced to that company starts over. Or do you, do you address that? Do, is it more of that careful hand-holding process? So that's one of the functions. I want to call it a careful hand-holding. I would call it a... I would call it a walking with. So you're not you're not holding the person's hand, but you're walking with them. Again, given that social capital. So that purpose is so that when we refer that person somewhere, we're not walking every step of the way with them. We are allowing them to go work with one of the community partners where we can exchange enough data that we need to make sure that that referral is effective. And then that's where the social capital from our end comes in with the customers. We don't just make that referral and then let it go. Okay. So if that customer comes back and has questions. We will follow back up. Oftentimes, the community partners communicate back and forth with, with our staff directly. So I want to say it's hand-holding. It's walking with, which, again, leads back to that social capital of letting our folks know that somebody cares. And not just cares, but somebody has their back and somebody's willing to pick up the phone. And then, you know, of course, there are things that happen where maybe something goes sideways in a referral. Maybe it's a bad day somewhere else. Those are times where you step up to the plate and say, well, I'm going to go with you next time and we're going to figure out how we can do this better for the next person. So not to say that things don't go wrong because things go wrong, but using any negative experience as a learning opportunity for the future family so that you can eliminate any of those barriers, hardships, confusing things um, makes the process way better over time. I mean, it's kind of a constant quality improvement, really a CQI situation of how that's the whole purpose of the safety net is how we can get families most adequately, most efficiently, and most easily served without it being just a data transfer, right? Right. right. Humanizing that data transfer a little bit. I, I like how you, you put it, that it's walking with, uh, that you are there to support, you are there to guide, um, to share the stories of these people with, with fellow partners, with partnering organizations. But at the same time, it sounds like there's a certain element of independence that you're promoting with these individuals you you give them an opportunity to take charge of well leveraging these organizations that exist and it's not just the organizations that exist but that's one of our entire models is to allow our families to have the freedom and the choices in their everyday life that you and i have so be concerned as well as a number of our partners we, we provide what they call supplemental services so when you come to be concerned we don't give you enough food for all 30 days of the month. You know, we try to focus on about 10 to 14 days worth of food for you and your family. It was always started as a supplemental program to hopefully allow families to pull that grocery money out of their budget so that they can pay for their health insurance, so that they can pay their Duke bill, so they can put some money into savings, so they can afford their medication towards the end of the year if they're in the Medicare donut. Our programs and a lot of our partner programs are supplemental in nature to allow our families to live as independent of a life as possible while having their humanity and dignity maintained. So like Be Concerned, we try to provide a staple number of items every month when you come to the pantry. So when you come to us, you know you're never going to have to buy eggs from Kroger. You're never going to have to buy milk. You're never going to have to buy potatoes. You're never going to have to buy onions unless you eat them all, you know, more than we can provide. But that allows our families, you know, everyone knows you're the best judge of what your family needs. You, you know your family better than anybody else. We try to give you the freedom by the services we provide as well as our partners to be the best advocate for your family, to spend your money where your family needs it, 
none of us should be telling you, you know, that you need to go do this right now. Now, some people need coaching, and I understand that. But for the most part, a lot of our customers are independent folks who just need a little help. And I think that's a real educational component in the nonprofit sector is most of our services have worked for years to try to escape any inkling of a dependency-based service, you know, a service that just keeps that's set up to just keep people coming back. Um, you know, a lot of us joke around, but it is true. You know, the finest hour of any food-based nonprofit is if I were to come to work and there was nobody needing food from the pantry. I mean, so, you know, if we if Beaconcern has done a good enough job with our partners over the years that there's no families in northern Kentucky or greater Cincinnati that need food, well, we would close because we've done our mission. We have met it. But we know that there's kind of always going to be a need. So we try to set our programs up more of a of a – a sustainability model for people to be able to grow their personal lives than a model where we've set it up to where you have no choice but to be coming back here all the time and be dependent on our services. I guess it would be correct to say that uh, the goal for your organization and, and many others who do similar work is to, in essence, seize existence, Correct. ideally, ideally. The nonprofit sector, I think, is about the only sector in the world that's like that. But that's the truth. I mean, all of us directors that go to work in the nonprofit sector are ultimately working to achieve a mission or fulfill a goal that really we're the only executives that I know about that work every single day to put ourselves out of a job or put ourselves out of business. Because if we do everything in a perfect world and we solve every issue that we're working to address, there'd be no more issues for us to work on. So it's a very interesting thing for me with that. And I'm self-aware of it. A lot of my friends and colleagues are too that we have a very interesting line of work that we literally try to put ourselves out of business every day by achieving that end goal. I can partially relate. As a consultant for many years, I've always believed that uh, as a consultant, my job was to to work myself out of that job with a client. If, if a consultant stays with a company for a long period of time, he or she, in my opinion, is not doing the best service to that client. So it's similar in certain ways uh, in my mind, so I can, I can relate. On your website, there's a really good video that talks about uh, your organization and, and different programs that you have. And there are uh, some people that were interviewed that, that talk about their experience with Be Concerned. They are your customers. Can you please share a little bit more around the the people that you're helping, the people you're serving? Because I think there is a maybe a misconception or a false belief or maybe just a lack of an understanding of who are these people that turn to your organization and other organizations that do charity work. Who are these people that that need help sure and i think that's a that's a great question it's a question that gets asked often honestly and i I think there's there's a very diverse answer for that Um, there is no one answer on who comes to be concerned for services because poverty and food insecurity affects different levels of people at different times in their life so you know for years i'm sure you know what i had heard all the time is you know you probably serve folks that might drink too much or that might have an addiction problem or that might refuse to work um, and overwhelmingly those fallacies are just false not to say that some of our folks don't have some of those issues especially within their extended families but a lot of the families that come to be concerned they look just like me and you they're they're regular people 
And I think that's what's always spoke to our mission is the customers that come to Beacon Center, you know, they're just, they're folks. And, you know, people come to us for different reasons. And I think there's kind of, a, there's a couple different big buckets that we serve. So a lot of the families we serve, about half of them. So, you know, you look at last year, we served nearly 7,000 people during the pandemic from almost 3,000 households at our food pantry, which is obviously almost double what we normally would in a non-pandemic year. But about half of those folks are senior citizens. They are folks who worked their careers that are now on Social Security or retirement, just on the, not at high levels. And so basically their fixed income doesn't stretch throughout the month, so they come to us for supplemental assistance. So those look like your grandma. They look like my grandpa. They look like people and our neighbors that we grew up with. Um, we have another thing, grandparents as parents. You know, one of the things that did happen during the opioid pandemic from a few years ago was that we sent a lot of people to prison. And when we sent a lot of parents to prison, we left a lot of kids in the custody of their grandparents, which, you know, when you're 70 years old and retire, you don't plan on having to feed three grandkids every single day of the week, you know, for two to five years or whatever that may be. So that puts families in the gap right away is our senior citizens on fixed income and then our grandparents as parents who are also still on that fixed income. Other than that, a large number of folks we serve are the working poor. And I think there's not a lot of education. Well, there is. There's been a lot more education over the past decade that folks turning to social services are not turning there because they refuse to work. A lot of folks are turning there because there's either not the right opportunity for them, there's no opportunity to grow, or they're stuck in a job that does not pay them a reasonable wage. So one of the stories I talk about is we see families who work. Mom and dad work full time. They work 40 hours a week apiece. They might work at a restaurant. They might work at a fast food place. And if it's a minimum wage job, $7.50 an hour times 40 hours a week is $300 times four weeks in the month is $1,200. And that's not without tax being taken out. So you take the tax out and that, that one parent's making less than $1,000. The other parent's working full time making less than you know, the same amount there, that is not enough joint income for that family to even afford a two-bedroom apartment in, in our region right now. So another issue is this, this class of folks who are stuck in the working poor zone, that they're working for essential businesses, they're working for places that are open every single day, but they are not being paid a sustainable wage that allows their families to live totally independently and not have to turn to social services at some point. But, I mean, that's very powerful. You know, a married family working 80 hours combined a week, making that low of an income is eye-opening to a lot of people. And, and the numbers are out there now. In, in the greater Cincinnati area, northern Kentucky, downtown Cincinnati, you know, Indiana, the, the cost of living that we've proven for a family does not match what, what a two-parent household can do working full-time in a minimum wage job if they have dependent children. And that, you know, that's something I think that the world needs to be educated on, that we have people working full time. And I didn't even go into the expenses. So, you know, if these yeah. families are working full time, they're probably paying a child care service, too. So you go ahead and take more than half of that money out for daycare. And then they have health insurance coming out of their paychecks. A lot of times our families are working full time simply to be able to stay housed to send their kids to school, and to have enough just to live and go to work every day. There's nothing left at the end of the month for an IRA. There's nothing left to work with an investment firm. And I think that that's a lot of the issues that happen with our low-income families is they stay behind for so long by the model we've set of what we pay some of our essential workers to where they'll never get a chance to get ahead. It's a vicious cycle. It right? is a cycle. And that's more of the cycle that leaves somebody dependent on the social service for 40 or 50 years because of that cycle of working at minimum wage 
And then when you get sick, when you get old, when you go on disability, you don't have enough from your minimum wage job that pays you a sustainable disability payment. So then you're still trying to find a part-time job and still in the middle of that vicious cycle. So if we look back at the ultimate goal of your organization and, and other similar organizations to ideally to seize existence, that would require addressing the root causes of all these problems, which, well, frankly, are outside of your control. I, I don't know how much voice and how much influence collectively food programs and just charity organizations in general have you know, among our political leaders but and business community for that matter as well. But it seems that you are... Uh, as you mentioned, you're you're filling the gaps of the system. And do you think there's a way you can help address some of the root causes uh, of of this problem, of this vicious cycle? Sure. Uh, and and that is. And, and one of the things I'll say is the charity section is small but mighty. And, and the benefit that all of us nonprofit leaders have is that when we have the opportunity to speak with our elected officials, to advocate on behalf of some of these changes that we want to see, the elected officials are very well aware that they're not speaking to Andy Brunsman, that they are that Andy Brunsman is using the voice of 6,000 people that got food from him last year at Be Concerned, and those are all that person's voters. This is what your constituents need. I'm speaking on behalf of them. And when 10 charities go to speak with legislators, that's the voice of a lot of people, lots of voters. And the elected officials in our region have been willing to listen about a lot of the, you know, the things we need to advocate for. In Kentucky, we specifically have some agricultural programs that are extremely important to advocate for. We have a Farms to Food Banks program. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our rural farmers in Kentucky, you know, say they don't have the best crop. There, there is a budget that we set in Kentucky working through the government. It's about $600,000 a year to purchase produce that's surplus from farmers or maybe grade B produce that they can't sell to a vendor. That farmer gets compensated and all that food gets donated to a charity to be able to go to someone else. There's a sustainability model there. And that was based off, you know, advocacy of farmers, charities. It was a way that helped the state. It's a way that helps the farmers. It's a way that helps the charities. And it's a way that helps the families that get there for food. A lot of the issues come from systemic poverty. And that is one of the things that a lot of our charities are working to break. And I think what a lot of us have learned is that one of the key components to ending um, systemic poverty or family-based poverty is education and opportunities for education. So opportunities from the kids from our poorest counties in Kentucky and our poorest counties from Ohio to have the same opportunity for post-secondary education um, and early learning as in other areas in our, in our, in our region. And that educational component is one of the best ways to break the chain of poverty. You know, we learn from those before us. And it is totally reasonable to understand that in our region, if you are the grandchild of someone who grew up in subsidized housing and lived there their whole life, and your, and your parents lived in subsidized housing their entire life, there is a very high percentage chance, like somewhere in the 80s or 90s, that you are going to spend your life dependent on public housing or public benefits. Not because you don't want something different for yourself, but because the opportunities you've had for education have been more systemic or systematic education, situational education, to where that's the model that you've seen from those before you. So that's the only way you know. You don't know there's another opportunity. You don't know there's a different way to do things. And trying to get that educational component out to folks that are struggling as young men and young women with generational poverty, 
we've seen great growth in providing education opportunities. So Brighton Center in Northern Kentucky is one of our great partners, and they are just a beast. I can't say enough about them. Um, by the time this podcast airs, they will have fully instilled their new executive team of, of leadership as their executive director retired. And, and, you know, they put a huge focus on trying to provide educational opportunities for our folks. Now, you know, are we sending everyone to Harvard? No. But we have to meet our people where they are. So Brighton Center runs the, the CET, the Career for Experiential Training. And that is a place where you can go get stackable credentials for like HVAC, for, for some, some nursing things. It allows people to have a real path to go live a sustainable is not the right word, but a successful life with more mm -hmm. than they ever thought they could have. And, and basically by providing those opportunities and that education and that pipeline, that walking with someone through that process, again, you find out that you have customers and clients that go through those programs that you may never see or hear from again because you gave them the key to the rest of their life. And that's the ideal scenario. Correct. And what about the business community around here? Do you think that there is enough involvement in this educational aspect of uh, supporting uh, families in need and providing that assistance, do you think various businesses are doing enough today to provide that additional level of education for uh, adults as well as kids? It's kind of a, a loaded question, I guess, because <laughs> enough is a very subjective term, right? That's true. And, and one of the models I've made for myself all the time is, you know, what the status quo thinks is enough, there's probably some more wiggle room at the top to do. So are people doing things about it? Yes, they are. Is there room to do more? Of course. There's always room to do more than enough. Um, I think that our region here in greater Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky, a lot of our businesses are invested in this stuff. These are a lot of the targeted questions that places have asked is not only how are you serving your folks, but how are you helping your folks to not have to be served? And I think we've got really good feedback and, and good support from our local community with that, not just the business sector, but also our political leaders, you know, our church leaders in the area, because it's really heavy in this area. Um, I mean, places could always do more, but that's where you get our good, our good large partners like United Way, mm -hmm. Free Store Food Bank. They work a lot more with those corporate level partners to trickle down the services or what a smaller place like Beaconcern needs to provide. Uh, and there's a constant interest by those um, corporations in our area of breaking that cycle of poverty. And like I said, what a lot of, of, of our, our folks want, they want that education component because the goal of almost every funder is, you know, help people get self-sufficient so they don't have to come to get help. And and I think there's been a large investment there. Like I said, United Way has led great educational um, opportunities through that. I'm sure they've gotten feedback from their business community. Um, I'm very proud of the tri-state region we live in. And I think that's one thing that makes Greater Cincinnati so interesting is in this region, we're not just dependent on the constituents in Kentucky. We're not just dependent on the constituents in, in Cincinnati or Hamilton County. We're not just dependent on Indiana. We have a really metropolitan area here of having three states kind of all within 20 minutes driving distance from each other to where you can pool um, business sectors, opinions from all three of those different states and then start to, to try to implement what is the mm -hmm. enough. Well, and I guess uh, to clarify the, the definition of enough, at least in my mind, uh, if we look at uh, the basic principles of supply and demand, if the demand from uh, the community that you're serving is not being met, 
by the various services that businesses are willing to provide, uh, specifically educational services, then I would say it's not enough. But at the same time, if uh, the variety of programs and the number of people willing to spend time to teach different skills, to provide that additional level of education. If the supply of those people and those uh, ideas and desires is sufficient to choose from, well, I would, I would say, I would argue that, yeah, there, there are plenty of options for people to take advantage of. And it sounds like, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like the demand is greater than the supply. Would you agree with that? I, I would agree that the demand is greater than, than the supply. And also you have to look at your demander. So sometimes there's a, a supply there or a pipeline, but you know maybe, maybe there are significant barriers in the way of that. So for example, say we need a forklift training opportunity here for folks trying to get that job. Well, if you don't have a warehouse to do that, or if the warehouse that you do it is 100 miles away in the middle of nowhere with no bus, you have the answer. The answer is we can train you but you don't have the answer for how they get there to get the training. Um, and that's one of our base things that we struggle with in Northern Kentucky specifically is education is such a broad-based thing, right? A lot of times people think education is school. Well, education could be education about the programs that are out there. You know, education could be about all the way up to housing incentives for low-income families to be able to purchase their first home. Education is that we have a major public transportation issue in Northern Kentucky of trying to get our customers to where they need to go to receive the services they need to receive. There's an education component that's not just for the customer base, but for that greater business community, for the donor, for the community in general to understand that it's not as simple as Andy refers someone to Brighton Center and they teleport there, right? There's gotta be, they have to get there some way. They have to make sure they can get there when they're open. If they're going to training, they might need steel-toed boots. So that's the more educational component. Education is so broad with this because we can provide the training, the business can do that, but you know, what if you have to be in a Dickies outfit every day? Well, I mean, you can't just send somebody right there to work. It's even at the lowest level of, you hear all the time, why can't they just go work at a fast food restaurant? Well, even in a fast food restaurant, you gotta have black slacks and non-slip shoes. And if you don't have those to start, how are you gonna come up with $100 to buy your necessary work uniform before you can get a job? And it's those low-level barriers that I think the education component can address the most is, listen, the resources are out there, but there's still things in the middle of getting the consumer to the end product. And these are the things in the way. And that's where we've seen a lot of positivity from our business community in trying to address those needs, trying to be open and aware that that some of the folks coming to them for training, this might be the first time they've ever tried to do something like this, that they're not going to know, right? They're mm -hmm. not going to know right away of, of, of everything they're going to need to either have or the ways to get there. There's going to be significant barriers in the way. And educating people that, you know, you got to be willing to give a second chance. You have to be willing to kind of explain things that you or me may feel like need to not be explained. Um, like I said, education is just such a broad base because a lot of people think it's school-based education, and, and it's not. Like I said, there's life skills there. There's budgeting class. There's credit counseling. There's parenting class. There's anger management. There's addiction resources. There's education that goes along with all of those things. And, and most importantly, what I think is a barrier education. And I think barrier education is extremely important, not on behalf of just the consumer or the customer, but also for the staff and also for the donors, that these are, these are the systems set up in place. This is the enough that we have right now. But these are the things getting in the way of the enough. And I think for me, that is the biggest question of what more can our business community and our community do at large 
is how can we better educate people on the things that get in the way of folks getting enough? I'm wondering if business community simply doesn't know, doesn't comprehend all the different interdependencies that you just mentioned. Uh, I, I would say I'm probably guilty of myself of not fully understanding of all the different challenges that people face as they try, as they attempt to to make that leap and and uh, get that additional education, get that job. But there are so many barriers that you mentioned that many many people don't even realize that they exist. So is really one of the key functions and key roles of Be Concerned is to provide that full picture to the community, to the business community, to elected officials that explains all of those barriers and everything that's in need and basically, in, in essence, manage that, that change for your customers to go from their current state to to the desired future state that is much better than than you know what it is today sure and that's that's i would love to say that yes be concerned you know can explain all of that stuff to any any person who wants to know i will be lying so the fact is i can speak very educatedly on the reasons why people may struggle to get access to food i can speak very educatedly on why people may not have the best nighttime residents in their home. For example, not sleeping on beds or having a whole family who lives in one room on a mattress together. That's where we rely on our on our collaboration and social capital with other providers through the safety net to help educate on those other issues. So what I think one of our strongest things is, yes, our job is to educate. I can't do that by myself. That's when the charity sector comes together and says, you know, Andy, you know kind of what's going on with the food game. You know, friends at Brighton Center, you know what's going on with addiction and treatment, financial issues, family services, you know, parish kitchen, you know what's going on with the day-to-day need for hot meal service, uh, and then all the way down to like transitions, you know, all about residential rehab and addiction. Um, that's where we kind of pull ourselves together and say, listen, we need to have a united front of addressing as many of these issues as we can, and, and no one of us can speak to every single issue. When we start to pool all of our talent together and all of our shared knowledge and all of our learned experience, that's when we can start to develop the narrative of this is really what's getting in the way. And that is one of the true values of the safety net is I may have no idea that referring one of my folks at Be Concerned to another service has a giant barrier in the middle that a bus line got shut down. To be educated by that other provider that there's a massive service barrier, I can't. I don't have a crystal ball, basically. I'd love to sit here and say, yeah, Andy Brunson knows every single thing about why families can't get what they need. But, you know, we're, we try to be the expert in food, and we try to rely with the talent around us and our partners to be the experts in childhood poverty, childhood mortality, um, homeless and housing services, street homelessness, mental health and addiction treatment. You know, those are things that we rely with our partnership to which we develop a map of how can we do this. So communication between all of these organizations it sounds like it's a it's a critical component for a more successful, more comprehensive approach to addressing these problems that people are facing. So it sounds like it's uh, you're already doing that, and I'm sure there are various challenges that you you have yourselves as as organizations as you come together uh, that you have to overcome in order to improve that communication and information sharing. 
And one of the things I'll say about the business community is you look at the enough, you know, what mm-hmm. is enough. You look at 2020 and the year of the COVID-19 pandemic, overwhelmingly, the business community in this region stepped up to the plate to try to make sure that all the charities that could do were doing, and not just were doing what we normally do, but doing it at a much larger scale because the demand was so much higher. So I'll talk numbers for a minute. You look at a small place like Be Concerned, and last year, you know, we started the year with, I think, a $190,000 budget deficit. It was our first year coming off a whole calendar year of opening another food pantry site in Erlanger that we had kind of merged with and acquired from a long-term partner. And realizing that we probably had some significant fundraising challenges to do that year just to get our regular mission done. And then you look at what Be Concerned was willing to do for our families in the pandemic. And we switched our whole choice pantry model from families coming in the building to everybody being served in their own vehicle, still getting a menu to keep our choice pantry alive. As the word spread through the business community, through the media, of what Be Concerned was doing for families, and as they could show the parking lot filled with cars that looked just like yours and mine, and folks for the first time coming to get food, the business community overwhelmingly responded not just with opportunities to come and help, but financially. And you look at that $190,000 budget deficit, which is a 32-year-old executive director at that time, is kind of a kind of a scary thing mm-hmm. on a small-scale agency. And then to finish the year and clear that budget by $50,000 through the benevolence of the corporate community who who wanted to positively respond to what we did, who realized we couldn't do what we were doing during this time. It's not that I needed the overhead to cover whatever we were doing before. It took that much to serve everybody else. And that was kind of the greatest responses we got from the business community is it showed us very strongly that those who could do during the pandemic, they didn't just do a little. The corporations that could do did huge for the charities that they could do it for. And I think that's a great uh, I don't want to over I don't want to overshadow the fact of the enough. You look at the financial end of that of of what our families of what our businesses did for our families that I that was well more than enough of what our local businesses did financially to try to let us provide our services. What percentage of funds that you receive end up going to directly to your customers and helping them versus maintaining your operations sure so we have stayed diligent in the years of be concerned to do our best to keep our overhead costs so the cost of our staff that's not associated with providing the food the cost of our of our utilities and things that don't go to the food portion we have done our best to try to keep those at a 10 percent or lower rate um, and ideally our goal is always to try to keep at least 80 percent of our revenue that comes in going to the services we provide to our families and not to just paying me so I can, you know, have a nice paycheck or my staff to have a nice paycheck. So we, we have done a very good job. Our board, and not me, our board has been very diligent in the years of always understanding for a food-based charity, almost everything that we do from our staff needs to center around the services we provide because there's no reason to be paying large salaries to staff that aren't providing a service in some way or another. So we try to hover, like I said, at that 10% rate, but with growth, you know, you do have to invest in in your services across two sites, and and that's our goal is to always be kind of below that 20% route of the overhead cost situation. Um, And I will tell folks that's been a big educational component over the past, I would say, decade. Uh, there's a terrific TED Talk that came out a while ago. It, it was when I was a student. It really helped me with this. It was called The Overhead Myth. And I think that that has been an extremely helpful tool to donors, to businesses, to realize the nonprofit sector is a very unique thing to where 
almost everybody asks that same question. Well, how mm-hmm. much of my donation goes to the food and not to your paycheck? Right. A lot of people don't realize that we can't pick up the food that we pick up from Kroger or Free Store Food Bank or Target or Meyer or Walmart. We can't pick those up without gas in the vans. And we can't drive the vans without insurance. And we can't pick the food up at all if we didn't buy the vans in the first place. So there's a necessary overhead cost that for some reason, the nonprofits gotten this myth over the years that no donations should ever go to that overhead cost. All donations should just go to service. Well, I can't keep the food safe if I can't keep it cold. And freezers and fridges are expensive. And that TED Talk did a lot to explain how the nonprofits might get beat up at a different level than any other publicly traded companies do about what that overhead cost is, because it's a myth. There must be an overhead cost. And the other part of that is talent-wise. You know, the fact is charities are expected to run maximally efficient agencies that have minimal overhead, but oftentimes we want to pay our executive directors or our, our, our people that are expected to enforce that, you know, lower than an entry-level job in almost any other line of work. And with that overhead myth, it's, it's been proven that the nonprofit sector does not, on the vast majority, attract our top knowledge coming out of college. Our top students in college in the United States are not flocking out of university to go work at a nonprofit agency. And part of the reason for that is the education that's been done on their own of the sacrifice of self-wealth that they will experience over their life should they give their beginning of their career, their middle, and the end of the nonprofit. It's why the nonprofit may or may not see a whole bunch of people come in towards the end of their career to work in that field is they have to worry about their personal wealth first, which is totally understandable. We have a family to worry about. But educating folks that in order to run the best charities that maximize efficiencies, you have to attract better talent. And not to say we don't have good talent, but you got to attract the best talent if you want it run like a big-time company. And that talk gives a great explanation and a great eye-opening opportunity for folks listening to it that there are challenges we go through that other places don't have to to get to that maximum efficiency, to try to keep that overhead cost down as low as we can. But a lot of times by trying to drive the overhead cost as low as you can, you'll sacrifice some level of your service. Mm-hmm. And, you know, which one's better? You know, keeping extremely low overhead costs but not meeting a need for the community or saying, listen, we need to start a new program. It's going to cost overhead because we need a staff member to manage it. But it's going to lead to all these great outcomes for the families that really need the help. So that that overhead cost is something there's been a lot of education on. We do our best to stay really low. Um but it's one of the it's one of the few sections that you get asked that question all the time is the is the overhead and people don't realize it's 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 necessary you know we have to have insurance we have to pay the fees for our building and you can't provide any services if you don't have right. money to pay for those basic things absolutely in all fairness i think at least in my experience uh, various people and various organizations that i had discussed or participated in uh, various outreach programs and and charity work, I think the understanding of the necessity of overhead has always been there. However, the efficient use of the funds that come in is often in question. And I think the numbers that you've provided uh, to me sound, uh, well, very reasonable. And I think they, the focus is very much uh, on helping uh, the people in need, and that is the priority. Period. I, I haven't heard even in a single indication of of anything but the primary purpose of everything you do, of all the funds that come in, well, to help the people in need. 
Well, you have to be willing to do, I guess you are correct, 100%. And I think one of the things where some of us, where I have been frustrated in the past, is you have to be willing to do the extra work to keep your overhead down, right? So it's a lot easier for me to just say, listen, we're just going to buy eggs from the dairy every single day for the food pantry. But you have to be able to be the leader that looks for what opportunities provide that at lower cost for free. It might cost a little more gas money to go and get it from a donation site like a Kroger um, or from the free store, but you end up saving a ton of overhead. You have to be willing to do the hard. Like you have to find a way to the yes. So that's one of the things that I think Bee Concern has always been prided on is we find a way to the yes. So if we need eggs in the pantry, I just don't go start writing donor checks. We pick up the phone. We call places. We make the ask. So with overhead, yeah, I mean, overhead becomes a big problem when you start using your overhead-restricted funds to make your job easier. And I think that's the key of where people get upset at overhead is a lot of time overhead is associated with ease. Cutting corners. Cutting corners or grease in pockets. So it's one or the other. So it's either cutting corners or paying somebody, Mm -hmm. making sure they get paid a lot of money. And the overhead can be controlled by being willing to go through the avenues of the ask avenue. You know, if you have a need, ask who can provide it for you. See what resources are there instead of just picking up the phone and buying the first van that you see on AutoTrader. You know, call the place. See where you can get some social capital with, with a car dealer, for example. See how you can drive that price down as low as you can before you just use the overhead funds you have to say, ah, well, we'll just go ahead and do the easy thing and buy the first one we find. I think that is one of the challenges with overhead is your job is to find a way to keep those as low as possible. And where some people get burned is it does become a lot easier to say, man, I don't want to call 30 different stores today. Let's just buy it from here. That's that's one of the hazards with overhead costs is you still have to be willing to be very nimble and navigate the landscape. You still have to be willing to find a way to the yes, even though you have a yes in the bank, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Well, keep completely. that yes for later. Use this yes for right now. That goes back to leadership and, and setting that, setting the right tone for yourself and for others that you work with to uh, not to cut corners and to make the right decisions with uh, the long-term uh, benefits for the for your customers with the long-term objectives in mind. So again, I think that's very much a, a leadership component. Sure. Let me ask you a little bit about uh, the types of donations that you receive. We talked about the financial aspect. What about non-financial donations that uh, are most common? And I also want to throw into the into the mix uh, with this question what people should not donate if if there is ever such a scenario sure so you know right now um you know we provide a staple monthly supply of like canned goods and shelf stable items as well as fresh items for families during the pandemic you know there's been a big need for things like paper products toilet paper paper towels uh, and cleaning agents like uh, hand sanitizer antibacterial spray those kinds of things that have surfaced to the top. Those, we accept year-round um, non-perishable food for the food pantries at both of our sites. We are always in need of food. The food goes to our families, and it goes to drive down the overhead cost of providing those staple items. So for every box of cereal that Dimitri donates, that's one box of cereal that we don't have to pay off the overhead budget to provide the food. In terms of our thrift stores, so we haven't talked at all about that, but Be Concerned does our food pantries on one floor of our buildings and a thrift store on the other that sells things for low price to the general public but also gives it away to families who can't afford it. So this is kind of a two-phase question. The food pantry, we will accept any unopened cleaning supplies, hygiene products, paper products, 
Um, and then any like hand sanitizer or, you know, personal travel things. Um, down and, and cooked food is one of the things that's not the best for us. So a lot of people will call and say, you know, hey, we had a birthday party. We've got a tray of macaroni and cheese left. Um, prepared food is not something in Be Concerns kind of model that we provide. Um, that's done more through other charities. So sometimes when folks call, they're surprised to hear that we don't take their bucket of chicken left over from their family camp out. Um, it's not safe, so we don't do that. Uh, another educational component is a lot of folks think when they donate to a food pantry that bulk is all that matters. So some people will go out and they will buy the 100-pound bags of rice, and they will drop that off because they think, man, that's so much rice. Finding a family that can handle 100 pounds of rice at once is hard, and as a food pantry, Be Concerned is not registered to, like, break down food. So we're not allowed to take a 100-pound bag of rice and dump it into bags and give everyone one pound. A lot of folks say, well, we'll just get the giant bulk bags. They'll make a huge impact. The smaller quantity things are better because it allows us to scale up what we give a family. So, you know, we can give a bigger family five one-pound bags of rice, but finding one family to take a 100-pound bag of rice is really, really difficult. Um, when you switch to our thrift stores down, oh, and then, you know, anything vastly out of expiration. So, unfortunately, some people have a great heart, and when their grandma dies, they will go into her cupboard, and they will bring everything down to the pantry. And when we look at the dates, it all expired in 1995. So, you know, taking a basic check, and basically, if you want to eat it yourself, or if you want to give it to one of your family or friends, don't bring it to the food pantry, essentially. And from the thrift store aspect in the in the basement, it's anything that's clean and usable is terrific. We try to stray away from the older older um, electronics like uh, floor model televisions or like the super heavy wardrobes and bureaus or metal desks. Anything that's super heavy or that's an, an old TV, um, typically we would ask you not to take to us. But other than that, if it's clothing, if it's glassware, toys, um, small furniture, um, sporting goods, uh, electronics, even appliances, if they work, we're doing washers and dryers and things like that. As long as they're not super heavy, bedding, we still take bedding. Um, pretty much, we always say if you use it, if it's in good repair and if it's not super heavy, um, be concerned, we'll be willing to accept it from you. And if it's not, we don't even make that stuff available to our, our customers or our shoppers in the thrift store. If it's garbage, we put it right where it belongs. It goes right in the mm -hmm. dumpster. So we, we do sort and process everything too. Um, and then the biggest thing I'll say is the need changes from time to time throughout the year. So, you know, at Thanksgiving time, after Thanksgiving might not be the best idea to bring down a skid of cranberry jelly because we probably have a bunch of it. So I would encourage people to reach out. We will always tell you what we need the most of. Um, and we always have hovering needs. Cereal is always one for us. It's just a hard item to come by um, because we can't provide a, a variety of labels because cereal is expensive. Um, but basically, reach out. I mean, we have our website, we have our Facebook page, and we have phone numbers. Um, the best way to learn what we do and don't take is to ask, but those are really good guidelines for the thrift store. Anything super heavy, anything broken, or anything just gross, don't bring it down. And food upstairs, as long as it's not prepared and not in giant bulk bags that we need to break down, we can do that. And then it educates a lot of folks pet food. A lot of people don't think that pet food is something that's important to a food pantry. A lot of our low-income families have pets, just like me or you would, um, and that's been an educational thing for me over the past five years is they have customers have asked for dog food. You know, we've gotten out of the old-school model of, well, if you can't afford to feed your family, you shouldn't have a pet. You look at therapy pets and prescribed animals now for folks with mental health issues or anxiety. Um, 
you have to be able to feed your pet, especially if it's prescribed by a doctor. So pet food is something that the charity will accept as well. Um, and since it's not a human-consumed item, we can break that down. So you can bring us the 100-pound bag of pedigree, and we will break it down into five-pound bags so it goes to 20 families. But pet food has become a really hot topic lately of, you know, what can we do to get more of that stuff to low-income families who need it? Interesting. Okay, that's actually very helpful information. Um, back to the topic of uh, local partnerships and how various organizations uh, can help and can assist you in your work and in what you're doing. Do you look for, do you welcome help from organizations to help you on the administrative side of things? For example, to help with the uh, with a website or maybe some other services, be it IT related, maybe financial services, whatever it may be. Do you seek that kind of help from a local uh, business community? Yeah, it's a great example why I'm sitting here right now with you doing the podcast <laughs> is, you know, Be Concerns got, you know, some knowledge. We want the community to know what we're doing, but I don't have this capacity to, to, to do a, a podcast that gets to more constituents than we have. We rely very heavily on our business community to help us with those administrative functions. So, um, you know, I deem myself as a good talker, is a good people person. I am not a super strong accountant. That was my dad's gig. He was the accountant in the family. Um, so we rely on a local CPA, Joe Von Lehman from the Von Lehman firm. He's retired, but he comes in and does our, our books for us, helps me with that. Um, we have our friends throughout the field that do things like help with our 990 for our, our annual taxes for the charity. Um, and we have some paid vendors, but we get a discount, right? You got to realize, too, not every company can do things totally for free. But you have to look at their willingness to say, listen, like, really, this is as cheap as we can give it to you without without hurting ourselves. So I consider that a level of support from the business, too. We're able to do it at the bare minimum cost. You look at our website right now. Um, Netcrafters is a company right here um, out by this office. And for years, they've taken care of our website kind of at no cost to the agency for us. Uh, I have no problem being a, sh a shameless self-promoter for Be Concerned. If we have a need that we can't do, we will always look to ask before we pay. So if we can find someone, and that's exactly how we found Joe Von Lehman. We put an ad out in the Catholic Messenger to the churches in, in northern Kentucky saying, man, we're looking for a volunteer who, who's a CPA and wants to volunteer doing CPA work. And he tells a story, he said he had never seen that in his whole career. You know, what charity goes out and, and just puts an ad in the paper that we need a volunteer to help us with the books? He thought that was so powerful and so unique because we were willing to ask. Um, but we constantly go back to our community. And it's not just the for-profit partners. It's like our Northern Kentucky Health Department. You know, the health department, I don't know all the answers about COVID. I, I don't know all the best practice. But we have a venue we can ask of best practice people to do that. Um, it's same thing, like I said, with our merge with United Ministries when we acquired that building. Um, you know, we got lawyers involved because that's something that I didn't know how to handle. And neither did our board all the way. And then when we moved to our new building in 2016 to facilitate the Duvenick Square development in Covington, I mean, I burned my Rolodex up calling anybody I could to help the agency with the real estate contract, the land. And we were able to have one, Thompson Hines firm, uh, a friend of the agencies there, was able to do that work for us um, pretty much at no cost um, through their charitable program. So we try to take a look the best that we can through the opportunities that we have throughout the business to see who will help us. And, and what are your most urgent needs right now? Well, 
Gosh, I, I want to loop back because I missed a big part of that, which is marketing. So you look at, you know, Be Concerns got some new branding and everything looks nice. That was a Louisville-based company who did that for us for free. She, They were a contact through Linda Cross, who's our development director at the agency now. Um, but they did a, an entire rebrand of the agency that would had to be valued more than $15,000 worth of work. And they did that for free because, you know, they believed in our mission once they were educated on it and really wanted to help us get up with the times. To, to talk a little bit about the sustainability and, and the whole independence um, of, of your customers and, and addressing the root cause. I come from a very interesting background, uh, from, from a different culture. Uh, I, I came here when I was 15 years old, and my childhood I spent uh, in Russia in the 80s and early and to mid-90s very, very difficult times. Shortage of food uh, was, uh, was very common. Uh, I remember my older brother even cooking cheese at home because, well, you couldn't, couldn't buy it at the store. So I have a certain level of experience, if you will, um, to, to different hardships. Uh, related uh, to food and and food security but what i uh, what i learned when i was preparing for our conversation today that surprised me i'll i'll be honest with you surprised me is that a lot of the counties uh, and we can talk about Kentucky or even Ohio for that matter, but a lot of the counties with the highest rate of food insecurity and the highest rate of poverty, those are rural counties. Again, going back to my uh, roots, my experience, my first thought that came to mind was, why aren't people growing their own food? Can you help me understand because you're much closer to this problem. I'm really sincerely curious and trying to understand. We live in a favorable warm climate. What's preventing people from gaining that food security, that independence by growing food and maybe even selling food through food programs, through charity organizations to one another? Has anything like that been tried? Um, maybe there are some programs that exist uh, today, or, or am I completely off base? <laughs> no, you're not. You're not off base at all. Um, it, it goes back to what we talked about earlier. It's an educational issue, I think, um, because culturally, if you look across some of our demographics throughout our food pantry, right? So we talked before about if your if your grandparents lived in subsidized housing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, if your grandparents never grew their own food and your parents never grew their own food, and you've never seen anyone grow their own food, why would you know that you could grow your own food? So there's an educational component that comes into there of never having that learned or shared experience that you or I would have, that you can grow your own tomatoes, that you can grow your own peppers. And culturally, and I've seen this with our Hispanic population, because that started to grow a whole lot of be concerned in Northern Kentucky, our Hispanic population kind of needing some food. And what I can say wholeheartedly is a lot of our Hispanic families, they, they have experience in agriculture. They have experience before they came to America growing their own food. And drastically during the summer, especially the warm weather months, 
you can go to a number of our Hispanic families' households throughout Covington, not even in rural Boone County where you think the farms would be. I'm talking backyards in Covington in a shotgun row house with a three-foot backyard that are cranking out hundreds of tomatoes, where they're running stakes, they're running it along their fence. They know exactly what they're doing, how to maximize the grow season, and how to get the most yield out of what they're growing, where some folks don't have that. Now, we have a great opportunity in Northern Kentucky through University of Kentucky, as well as Ohio does through Ohio State University's Extension Office. So we have the Extension Services, which each year provide food pantries with educational materials to give to our customers that come with seeds as well. So when it doesn't come with seeds and educational components on how to grow, they will also run some training on people of how, of how to grow your own food. And then on the back end, they will. what we found is a lot of folks don't want to grow some of the easy-to-grow things. So a lot of folks don't want to grow squash. Why? Because they've never had squash. They've never seen anyone how to make it. So the Extension Office will also give out recipe cards with those seeds to help educate the folks not only how to grow the food, not only the timeline of the year to plan it, when to harvest, but also how do you prepare that food? Um, and then also how do you store it? You know, educating people that you can can things. Um, and I think that's a component I would personally like to see is I believe we would have a lot more folks who would be willing to grow their own stuff, their own food in northern Kentucky, um, if they knew what to do with the overage of it. If you had way more carrots or way more tomatoes than you needed, you can can them. And we don't have that educational component um, on a whole level that a lot of people know about of, you know, running a canning class, running kind of a, I hate to say it, but like a pioneers, how to survive on your own. Um, that includes the, the timeline to grow, when to grow, ideal soil conditions. But, I mean, our extension office in Kentucky, they even allow you to take soil samples from your garden and mail it to them. And they evaluate it in their office and they tell you what you need to add to maximize your growth. So I remember one year there, and, and community gardens have become a big thing. So mm -hmm. for years, Free Store Food Bank managed something called the Giving Fields in Northern Kentucky. That has now gone on to a different provider, but that speaks to exactly what you're talking about. In our region, on the river, why can we not be growing fresh produce totally for free that goes to the charities? And that program ran for a long time of Free store growing food, Beacon Start and other charities going to pick it up and taking it right to our food pantries. And then with that came farm and garden training, because one of the things that you brought up is how do people not know? It's one of the things that I brought up in that meeting was, I don't know how to grow my own food. How am I supposed to tell my folks at Beacon Start how to grow their own food? So without training the providers, how are we supposed to know what to tell people? So we had a couple years of our first ever farm and garden training for staff only so that staff and providers could go out and learn from the farmer of this is what you do, this is when you do it, so we could pass that education on down to our customers. It all comes down to education, doesn't it? It, it starts with that. It, it starts does. With that I, I truly, like mm -hmm. I said, I truly believe that, that that's a lot of is the education of just, of just not knowing that you can. Myself, I feel that uh, through that education, whether it's teaching people to grow their own food uh, or teaching them different trades and skills, that can create an ecosystem, an economy of its own where they can exchange different services. Uh, you know, if you grow a lot of potatoes and somebody else grows a lot of corn or, or tomatoes, well, through organizations such as Be Concerned, that exchange could potentially be possible, right? It could be facilitated. So it seems that... Uh, well, I, I'm, first of all, I'm, I'm happy to hear that attempts have been and continue to to be made to 
create that independence and to educate people on how to get out of that vicious cycle. But it sounds like, uh, well, more can and uh, can be done and, and is continuing to be done on that front. Well, and your theory on caring and sharing there is important. So that's one of the things that's going on now from the large level. So, you know, Free Store Food Bank provides a lot of our charities with fresh produce at no cost because, you know, it's not just the it's not the breads and the donuts that are super important to our families. You know, healthy eating leads to a better lifestyle, mm-hmm. you know, and a healthier quality of life and a less public health care crisis for our low income in the future. So what had happened is for years, you know, we'd be dependent on local places to where when we get something, you might get 10,000 pounds of potatoes, but nothing else. So once a week, to my knowledge, Free Store actually garners local donations, and then they drive to Indiana, and they meet with other food banks, and they actually do that product trade so that Beacon is not only getting one item of produce. So they will go down and kind of mix produce, as they call it, so that... There might be three semis that go, one from Indiana, one from Kentucky, one from Ohio. But when they leave there, it's not just one semi full of corn anymore. It's a third a semi of corn, a third a semi of carrots, a third a set of, of onions. So that they're trying to get more variety. That's happening on the larger level, which is terrific. And then from our end with, with sharing, one of the greatest things that comes with that safety net alliance I keep talking about is it has an alert system. So when Be Concerned gets 5,000 watermelons during growth season, we can put an alert out to all the other charities that lets people know to come and get it so it doesn't go to waste. And even farther so than that, every single Friday, what's Beaconstern supposed to do with leftover food? Because we do have leftover fresh food every once in a while on a Friday. So we partner with other places that give it away on the weekend so they have access to the free food so we're not throwing it away in the dumpster mm-hmm. and so that we're being a good steward to all of our donors saying we're really willing to go the extra mile not only to feed our people, but to try to make sure this product is not wasted as a thank you to you and to go to anyone and everyone who needs it. And we stretch that out even so far to take it beyond people, right? Because one thing that happens is think about any time you've been at Kroger, there's a little kid that pokes his finger through one of the steaks on the meat aisle. I did it when I was little. Everyone has someone they know who have done it. Well, that's not a marketable product for us to give someone because it could be contaminated. But does that mean it should go in the garbage? So a couple years ago, Beacon Cern partnered with a wolf rescue in Indiana. So about once every six weeks, a volunteer of Beacon Cern's who also volunteers there, we save all of our oxidized meats or the roast with a finger hole in them, totally separate from our other food. But we save that so it doesn't go to waste, so it goes out to that wolf rescue and feeds the wolves in captivity. So we have tried to do anything and everything we can. Same thing with the thrift store. You know, I can only leave Dimitri's sport coat hanging for so many months if nobody wants it. Mm-hmm. We then share that stuff with Salvation Army. They come and take over. We do anything and everything we can to only put non-marketable, non-consumable items in the garbage. And it's not even just non-consumable by humans. That's how we figured out about the wolves, is they were looking for a protein source for the wolves. And by us doing this, it cuts down on their overhead a ton by not having to go buy meat for the wolves. Interesting. Are there any uh, unorthodox, uh, just maybe radically new or different ideas that you would love to implement here? Maybe something that you've seen or heard about or read about uh, being done elsewhere around the globe because this is not <laughs> this is not a local uh, problem. It's a global problem. Um, any, anything that you've seen that you'd like to try to launch here? I know that in certain parts of Europe, there are now laws in place that you cannot open a restaurant or a grocery store unless you have a partnership with a local charity to distribute any overage product that you would have. 
That would be a very difficult thing to manage, but I do not think that that is unmanageable. Now, Freestore does that through the Feeding America Network, which is our large corporate kind of United States-based. They, they handle all the big relationships with, with food donors. Um, so we're partnered with certain stores, as I've mentioned an awful lot, but there's no rules per se in certain areas that say, well, if you're going to open a taco stand here in Newport, you know, any of your extra stuff could go to this soup kitchen to be given out that night. I think there's some explore exploration that can be done looking at what mandates, I don't want to call them laws, but what expectations can be set when people open places to encourage them to minimize waste. Because, you know, the United States of America is one of the few places in the world that vastly overproduces food. Mm-hmm. I mean, we throw away enough food each year to feed everybody who's hungry, just like we foreclose enough homes every year to, to house on all the homeless. It's a very backwards, when you look at it that way, it's very strange. You know, the food that we put in the garbage each year is enough to feed our meal gap. And, and there's really not many places in the world that overproduce at the rate that America overproduces, especially in the food and agriculture game. But I think there's some opportunity looking at those models of what does that partnership look like to really start to solidify that that says it's not just the nonprofit that's going to try to minimize the waste, that we want the commitment of some of these business owners, too, to say they're really going to do everything they can. And Kroger's one of them. I mean, they rebranded last year to Zero Hunger, Zero Waste. Um, and that affected not only what they did for the charity, but also production. You know, Kroger had a look at, you know, it's great that they're sending 10,000 loaves of bread to be concerned in overproduction, but if we, don't, if we can only get rid of 3,000 of them, you know, that, that's, that's going well above and beyond. That, that's feeding the need of the dumpster, not mm-hmm. feeding the need of the people. So, you know, Kroger's been one that looked at that and said, listen, you know, we can minimize, we can continue to minimize hunger by doing the donations, but the other aspect is minimizing the waste, the amount of wastefulness that we have. And I would like to see that picked up on other places. I think there's a lot of value for that, of, of focusing on the goal should be to serve your customers, to, to be profitable. You know, I want you to be successful. Um, but at the end of the day, to take a look and say, you know, what more can we do to not just focus on the hunger end or not just focus on the waste, but there's a happy middle on both to say there's a way to serve both of these situations, which also in turn, I believe, helps the business owner. You know, there's tax write-offs that come with donating, um, you know, to charities. And I think there's opportunity there to say, especially in certain geographical areas, how can we make this something that if you're going to open a business in this zoning area, you have to be partnered with one of the charities? That would be, uh, I think that would be a refreshing uh, change in the approach. And ultimately, I think it starts with respect for food, right? That's that's ultimately uh, where we need to get to, in my opinion, is uh, at a uh, at a level of the society as a whole here in this country. I think it's important to really, well, gain that respect for food so we don't overproduce, we don't waste it. It's uh, um, in, in other countries, I can speak for Russia specifically, um, you know, I grew up uh, when my grandparents were still alive. Uh, I heard them uh, talk about the value of food with with such emotion because they lived through the horrific times of World War II and the hunger that that existed back then. The idea of throwing even a small piece of bread away was just—it was just horrible. It's, it's something you couldn't do, and that 
education, right? Going back to that education, I'm trying to pass on to my kids as well. So uh, get uh, put the f- food on your plate in the amount that you're going to eat, and then finish it. Okay. So it's a, it's it's a uh, it's a cultural aspect, right? That uh, that we have to address as well. Let me wrap up our conversation with uh, the last question. I uh, I like to ask this question of all my guests. Uh, You've already named a lot of uh, different organizations and and people that you're working with and partnering with um, that are doing truly wonderful work and helping uh, the community. Is there a particular individual that you would like to call out that really in your mind stands out as someone that is doing something truly different, uh, truly special, maybe innovative? Uh, who, who stands out that you would want to call out uh, doing an exceptional work? Um, I've mentioned Brighton Center a number of times mm-hmm. um, in this podcast. And, and again, a lot of that goes through our collaborative work through the safety net. But what I can say is, is my understanding of the history of Brighton Center, of how they have started and how they have continued to grow with the need of Northern Kentucky. I truly don't believe there are many charities that are as strong as they are in terms of their conviction, the talent they've attracted, their commitment to the needs of the customers, not only in one realm. I'm talking from food to family services to finance to education to addiction and treatment. They even run a catering company out of their women's residential um, addiction unit. So you're not only going to residential treatment there, but you're also getting educated and an opportunity for you to become a caterer once you're once you're out of you know that phase of your life. I have been extremely impressed with the leadership of Brighton Center. So Tammy will be retired, but Tammy Widinger is retiring after 40 years with the agency, I believe. Um, and they have a new executive team that's that's kind of stepping up to that plate to kind of fill that that role of leadership uh, and I would not be doing justice to Brighton Center the safety net or our region without thanking Melissa um, from Brighton Center Melissa Summerhall and Talia Fry um, for the leadership that they've done at a high level with the safety net uh, as well as Lauren Copeland who's one of their development professionals to invest their time and their talent in that agency and to be some of the folks who gave the beginnings of their careers, the middles of their careers, and the end of their careers to that mission to constantly try to get better, to better serve the families in need. And that speaks to all those programs I named, their willingness to start to build a bed program with Beacon, starting safety net partners when we found out kids weren't were sleeping on the floor and that that nighttime residence issue I mentioned earlier was starting to surface as, you know, a lot of our kids are having trouble in school because they're sleeping on the floor, a sleeping bag. And to see that Brighton Center has been willing to say yes, um, it has been very comforting um, for me as a young professional to have a big place like that, that I can count on as a partner and as friends, um, that I know we're always going to do the right thing, that are always going to be willing to do more, and that will always do the same thing as be concerned, and if it's what is needed, find a way to the yes. But for the crew at Brighton Center that I've worked with over my over 10 years in northern Kentucky now, I mean, I'd be lying if I said there's anybody doing mm-hmm. it better than they are. I'm very humbling. I can uh, say that I completely share your, your sentiment. I have uh, had the pleasure of 
actually working on a project for Brighton Center when I was working on my MBA uh, years ago. It was a, uh, a micro lending product uh, that they were looking to, to deploy to uh, battle predatory lending. And that was eye-opening for me to learn about that organization and everything that they're doing. So I, uh, yeah, I, I completely share your sentiment and your kind words and words of thanks uh, for that organization and those people. And it would be it would be unfair um, to not recognize Free Store Food Bank as well. Um, our regional food bank who has tried to do everything they can to stay as nimble as possible, especially during the pandemic. Um, but I talked about the produce mixing they do, trying to make things available at low cost. And during the pandemic, they found a way to pivot to find financial support. And our regional partnership, Lady Amy Hyde and a gentleman named James Ray, who works in the food rescue area in partnership, um, they went well above and beyond to try to make sure that food was not only available to Northern Kentucky, you know, but also um, eventually at a totally no cost model. Um, and food has been free from the free store ever since, you know, a couple months into the pandemic um, for everybody in their partnership network between the three states that they serve. Um, I have been impressed with their willingness to say we need to do more for the places that need it as well. Thank you, Andy, for everything you're doing. Thank you for leading a, a group of people that share your commitment and desire to help those in need. And I'll ex extend that thanks to other organizations that you're working with to help, uh, to help the community and help get people out of this vicious cycle, vicious cycle and hopefully hopefully you and we collectively will succeed in that. And uh, definitely a sincere thank you for being here today and taking the time to speak with me. Yeah, thanks for spending Saturday together. It's been a blast. Appreciate it.